today, May 10th, finance committee the second in a series of three. Uh, first off, do we have any public comments from the people here in the, uh, the council chamber? As usual. How about people on Zoom? Anybody on Zoom? Team? Okay, Nobody see. with their hand raised. Okay. First, uh, do you want to give us the lay of the land, Jamie? Or? Sure. Uh, so to you, Mr. really quickly, uh, folks have asked for many years, and finally we've delivered, uh, where uh, all three superintendents that represent the district are in the house. Um, and so uh, I just want to thank the superintendent and the staff from Norfolk Aggie. They're going to that lead off. I think they have the shortest, uh, the smallest budget, the shortest uh, presentation. But I just want to thank them for coming out and just introducing themselves to both the finance committee, but really more the community live on TV and on Zoom. Um, and just how great it is to, uh, to have them here and thank them for taking uh, a few minutes out. So, Tonight, I think it's pretty straightforward on the agenda. I know the most discussion will probably come around uh, the public school district, but um, we've got the Norfolk Aggie here. We're gonna just talk for a few minutes, introduce themselves to the community. Tri-County has a short uh, presentation uh, on their budget, presumably also a few uh, slides about the uh, school building project, and then uh, the Franklin Public School District will last. Gentlemen, introduce yourself if you would, and give us a, a Short presentation. <laughs> we promise to be very brief. My name is John Martin. I am the superintendent at Norfolk Aggie. Uh, finishing up my second year there. So if you have any real hard questions, don't ask me. I don't know. I won't know the answer. Uh, to my left is John Wallace. Um, I guess he can introduce himself. Uh, yeah, again, John Wallace, uh, business manager of Norfolk Aggie, and also in my second year at school. So John and I came. Uh, half of a year apart, so both of us still learn the ropes. One thing, you are in Walpole, correct? Walpole, so, yes. I'm yes. not sure everybody is, is fully aware of even, I know where you are. 400 Main Street, which is on Route 1A. Uh, we have 365 acres. Um, we were incorporated in 1916, so we've been around for a while. Uh, the first buildings were constructed in 1917. And the actual first campus for the Aggie was in Weymouth. I couldn't tell you exactly where. I'm not that uh, bummed up on my, my history, but I, I know that there was a building in Weymouth, and then when the build, buildings out uh, in Walpole were finished, everybody moved over there. Uh, we have four majors that the students study and can opt into. We have animal science, plant science, environmental science, and agricultural mechanics. Uh, not unlike Tri-County, our kids go through an exploratory program their freshman year. We actually extend it into the sophomore year. Uh, and then they choose their major that they will study uh, exclusively for their junior and senior year. Uh, we have a very high uh, graduation rate, about, depending on the year, anywhere from 60 to 70% of our kids go to a two or a four year university. Uh, most of the others go straight into the workforce. And as you probably know, uh, the jobs that we train our kids for, again, like Tri-County, um, are very much in demand right now. They're, they're, they're better paying than they ever have been, and there is a, uh, a labor crisis when it comes to some of these vocational uh, experiences. 
So that's a little bit of background on, on the school itself. Um, we are an agricultural school. We have a <coughs> couple acres worth of a garden. We have 25 cattle, uh, beef and dairy cows. We have about 17 horses, um, a couple hundred fish, rodents, uh, snakes, turtles, pigs, uh, lambs, sheep, goats, and a llama. Uh, and I've probably left out a few of <laughs> the basic food groups there. Uh, and the most populated uh, program right now is animal science. A lot of our kids are attracted because of the animals themselves, but it's not what we do uh, exclusively. We, we have the other four, three majors uh, that kids can opt into. Uh, do you have any questions about the programming or the school itself that I could answer? How many students? Uh, about 560. And do you know how many roughly come from like the Franklin area? Sure, yeah, I, I have those statistics. So for this uh, year, FY23, we had 16 um, students from Franklin, which is, which is a, probably above average for in-county. We have uh, students from all towns in Norfolk County except for two currently. Um, and we have about 50 out-of-county towns. So we have about 70 uh, some towns that send us at least one student. But Franklin uh, this year had 16 students, um, three of which are seniors. So we hope to get 13 uh, returning Franklin students. And so far, we've had about 16 um, applications for either the freshman class or the sophomore class, because we accept sophomores in the school as well. So it's likely that our population of Franklin students will go up a little bit from what it was this year. Maybe uh, two, three more students I would uh, anticipate possibly having from Franklin. So Franklin's significant, a significant town within and without Norfolk County for us. You know, the towns that send us more than 10 students are meaningful to us. And like I said, there are a handful of those towns in Norfolk County and a handful outside of Norfolk County. Is there the beekeeping program? Well, we, we have a beekeeping club. So yes, we do have bees on campus and we also rent our space to the Beekeeping Beekeepers. Association, or whatever it's called, yeah. So we have a two two connections to beekeeping on the school. And if you would, uh, one of our uh, plant science teachers uh, is the advisor for the beekeeping club. And if you were to, if she were here tonight, she would tell you that she'd like to triple or quadruple uh, our capacity for bees and making honey. But we're not there yet. Um, just a. So I was going to say, what's the application process like? It's the same as it is in any other vocational school in Massachusetts. Uh, you fill out an application. Uh, you participate in um, an interview process. You tour the campus, and then we take a look at your middle school records uh, and, and come up with a magic number that, that admits you or puts you on a wait list. The, compo all the components this year are what, John, from the middle school record? There are only two parts of the middle school record that we look at, right? Yeah, we no longer look at uh, grades. We look at attendance. We look at, uh, and we, we don't look at uh, letters of reference either. Those are two criteria that we eliminated in the uh, admissions changeover from last year. Um, so we place a high premium on the interview, which is worth 75 points out of 100. Uh, and then we look at, as I said, we look at attendance and we look significant at discipline only now, grades right? and significant, uh, significant discipline. I actually
actually know the graduate who was a successful barrier up in Vermont doing running her own business doing very, very well. Like, like most vocational schools, our, our student body is very diverse. Uh, so as I mentioned, I mentioned the, the kids who go to college. Um, we also have a healthy percentage of kids, as I said, that go straight into the workforce and uh, have meaningful, challenging jobs and, and are earning uh, good salaries as a result. Uh, and then we also have kids who go to Tufts Medical School and they become veterinarians. Um. What's the largest contributing community? Most students uh, from in town, I think, is Weymouth. Um, but out of town, the biggest the biggest town in general, or city in general, that sends us students is Boston. Boston. Really? Yeah, we have 40-some kids from Boston. So it's by a decent amount bigger than any other uh, city or town. And Brockton and actually Brockton sends us a bunch of kids, too. Second. Yeah. yeah, two out-of-county towns. Are you the only agricultural high school in the city? No, there are four agricultural high schools in the state. Um, there's one in Bristol County, there's one in Essex up on the North Shore, and there's one out west. So they're pretty well spaced out with the exception of us in Bristol. Um, so uh, students from Plymouth County tend to go to either Norfolk County or Bristol. Other than that, we get everybody that's sort of north of us, Framingham, Natick, you know, up, up there. That's where most of our students come from, and then we get them from Boston, obviously. What is your peak enrollment? Like, are you turning kids away, or are you able to accept? Yeah, no, no, we have a waiting list. Uh, our, as John said, we're, we're approaching sort of 575, 580 students. Um, this year we had about 450 students apply, and we only accepted 155. So there's a, quite a bit demand for vocational education in general in Massachusetts, and for us in particular. Um, it's been building for us. And Bristol is expanding, Bristol County is expanding its capacity. So they're, they've built a lot of buildings, so they're trying to accept more students. But there's definitely a demand for what we're offering that's beyond what we can uh, satisfy with the current buildings that we have. That's really what's limiting us is buildings. Our, our goal, uh, probably not going to be achieved in my tenure, but uh, maybe at some point in the future would be to grow and add students, add faculty, add buildings. Uh, because the demand is there. We have so many kids that we have to turn away. And it, it's, sometimes you hear the stories you know, from the kids themselves or from mom and dad, and it, it's really heart-wrenching uh, that we have to say no to so many kids. Just go ahead. Sorry, Please. I could ask a question about this only. So I, I will restrict myself. This is so interesting. If you'd like to come over for a tour, <laughs> Jamie has my email. <laughs> Oh, what's like your, like with that many applicants and you only accept 155, what's like the differentiating factor? Like, I know what you said you looked at, but like, yeah, like there has to be something very unique that is differentiating to, to that. Well, based, it's, it's pretty simple at the end of the day that the top 155 scores get in and everybody else is waitlisted. Right. I mean, the biggest factor is the interview and in the interview it's just something as prosaic as fit. You know, is it the fit of that student for our school? And kids come to our school with ideas of careers they want to go in, and some kids uh, come without ideas, but we just feel like they have the what you need to succeed at the Aggie. Um, it's not an easy school to go to because it's not the easiest <coughs> default for anybody because you're coming from your own town. Sometimes getting there is a 45-minute trip in the morning and a 45-minute trip at home, and after-school activities are complicated. So. 
kids that go there really want to go there, uh, you know, and they express that in the interview about what they're into. A lot of them are into animals, as John said, but some of them, the, the interesting thing about vocational schools in general is for some kids, it's just the way to get through high school. That traditional high school just doesn't work for them, sitting in the classroom and, and, and watching somebody else talk, that just doesn't work for them. I've had several parents say to me, I'm not sure my child would get through high school if they didn't go to a vocational school. It's not about the Aggie, it's just about the ability to learn in a different way, move themselves around from building to building, you know, get outside. Um, so it's really heartbreaking, like John saying, when you have to turn down kids who, you know, this is really where they want to go and this is really their idea of how high school is tolerable, you know, how to get through high school is to go to a vocational school. Um, financing question, and it, I understand it's not on the immediate horizon, but it's obviously on a long-term horizon. Mm -hmm. How would you finance buildings? Uh, I mean, Tri-County is here, they're going to have to do, replace their building, we know how they'll do that. How would you do that? Well, we, we have a bunch of small, smaller buildings, so we don't have the big, gigantic building to build, which would be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So. We are going, John and I have a plan to try to harness the power of our uh, alumni association and our alumni network. We've been around, as John mentioned, for over 100 years, so we've got some very established and successful uh, alumni. Uh, that's one of our angles. Another angle is to borrow money. We have borrowed money and floated bonds and borrowed money for school improvements and building in the, in the future, and then a combination, and then hopefully some money from the county itself. The county is uh, selling one of its assets, uh, you know, right now, it's selling one of its courthouses, so they're establishing a capital fund for the future for county <coughs> needs. And the school is a, is a department of the county of Norfolk. So we're assuming, right, John, that some of that money is gonna go our way when we're we, hoping when we have the right project. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be a combination of sources. We, and if we have to go down the MSBA road, then, then we look at that as well. But it's, it's, it's in the distance, as you noted. It's, 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 it's not going to coming, but it's nice. A lot of our buildings. Yeah, I mean, a lot of our buildings uh, were renovated in what? Uh, 2013 and 14. 2013-14. Yeah. Um, but a lot of them haven't been touched in 50, 60 years. So they're showing signs of age. Mickey roofs and things like that. Yeah. I would, before I, we're finished, if it's okay, I'd like to just give some thanks to some uh, school adjustment counselors and counselors that work in the school that have dealt with our admissions people. She asked me to maybe mention a few names if I could at the meeting. So uh, Hannah Lubenow, Allison Castro, and Adrienne Smith are all people that worked as counselors in the uh, middle schools in Franklin, in, in uh, either Horseman School or Remington and have facilitated the admissions process. So she wanted me to put their names out there as a thank you to, I guess, to the, to the town of Franklin. Lost the city behind it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very so we appreciate, we appreciate uh, them, and, and we appreciate Franklin. You know, we appreciate the towns that send us students. Um, you know, it's an honor to get somebody's students from them and, to, and an obligation for us to educate them properly. And hopefully it's, it, it works for both parties. It's an expensive education to deliver. Um, you know, so it's almost, a, it's impossible for a town to, to provide an agricultural education in any meaningful financial way. It would just be impossible. So we hope that what we're doing, which is, you know, consolidating a bunch of kids from different towns and providing an education that we hope a cost-effective way, 
um, you know, we hope it's working for you guys too because we're, it, it's working for us, you know, to get kids from Franklin and all these other towns in Norfolk. So the 66-6 this year, what's the, is there a tuition that we get billed per? Yeah, thirteen or whatever it was. Yeah, you get billed. You get billed an in-county tuition. So we have two different kinds of tuition. We have out-of-county tuition and in-county tuition. In-county tuition is a greatly reduced rate that we charge for Norfolk County uh, residents, uh, students from Norfolk County. Um, so we charge about four thousand dollars. The current rate for each student that we get from North, from Franklin, for instance, would be about four thousand dollars. Is what we charge to educate them. That changed to only one point six percent, I think, from last year's rate. So we really were conscious. You guys really stepped up for us last year when we did increase our rate from about two thousand dollars to four thousand dollars because we hadn't changed it in a bunch of years. It was part of what John and I felt like we needed to do to get the school to operate properly and to be able to have the money to provide the education we wanted to provide. You guys did so along with everybody else in Norfolk County without any complaints. Right, John? We were really... A lot of questions, but none, no complaints. Yeah, we were really, really well supported by everybody in Norfolk County, including Franklin, obviously. So this year we have a very minor increase, but we charge uh, 4000 and change for if each student. If I could interject, and it may be on your minds right now, so I'll, I'll volunteer this. One of the reasons that we had to hike the tuition last year is that the school had, for the better part of a decade, been running a, a pretty significant structural deficit. And the only way to get out from under that was to raise tuition for the in-county as well as the out-of-county uh, towns. Uh, so as John said, we, we thank all of the towns for, again, not, not pushing back too hard on us because everybody understood that we were in a pretty precarious situation. Sounds like a buy to me. Mm -hmm. um, anybody else? Anybody else? Any items? Guess not. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you all. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you, Mr. Helen. Thank you so much. Yep. two years. Um, I guess it's a trend except for Dan. He's been here a little bit longer. Yeah. I'm <laughs> school business managers. I'm in my fourth year at Tractor. Uh, so thank you for having us here this evening. Uh, we, it was nice that we, we met with you last year at the same time to go over our, our budget. Uh, we were here, it seems like just yesterday, but I think it was back in uh, November that we presented to town council on the, the building project. Um, so Tri-County is in the process right now, still with the MSBA. Uh, of the of the building project, we're in about halfway through the the pipeline, which is about eight um, eight steps long. We'll know next month, um, in the middle of June, what we'll be looking at for a final scope and budget for the project. Right now, we anticipate it to be in about the two hundred eighty million dollar range for a brand new building on the Tri County site. Um, so not much has changed since we came uh, back in back in the fall to talk about where we were with the process. 
Um, but again, we'll know, we'll know about June 15th or so. Uh, and then we do anticipate coming back out for another round of visits with the towns. Uh, we have 11 towns that make up Tri-County, everywhere from Sherburne all the way down to Seekonk. Um, Franklin, of course, is where our home base is. We're right around the corner up the hill and uh, proud to be there and happy to, to still continue. We've been there about 50 years and are looking forward to being there for 50 more. So, uh, this evening, Dan, Dan's our business manager and he'll go through some slides that we have for the budget, uh, our current budget. Briefly, recognizing Briefly. your time, being mindful of that and, and our friends at Franklin Public Schools <laughs> uh, be after us. Um, so in our budget, you know, we, when we started this process back in November, we established some budgetary goals maintaining our high quality education at Tri-County. Strategies to reach those goals. Um, you know, we've got some targeted SPED and SEL and mental health services. We did receive a $180,000 grant this year to help fund some of that. Um, and our financial plan, allocating our financial resources. Um, challenges, the Chapter 70 formula, which I'll talk to uh, very briefly uh, coming up. Uh, the cost of vocational supplies and equipment, um, inflation, supply chain issues, um, we're all well aware of those. Um, you know, we, we buy pretty expensive pieces of equipment. You know, our auto tech has lifts like you would see in a, in a garage. Um, so and we have you know, a few of those. So you know, it's very expensive to provide vocational education. Though this is hard to see. Um, but what I really want to point out here is that Chapter 78, we receive um, the minimal aid, um, which, depending on where we are with the state budget, um, somewhere between $30 and $60 per student. Um, so not a large incremental increase in one of our larger uh, revenue sources. So that, that does pose a problem for the district, and it's a pretty simple graph, but if you look at the red, um, that's our state aid, which has been flat for some time. Um, and the blue is the assessments to our member communities, which is increasing in accordance with our costs on a yearly basis, um, not having that additional state aid to help fund um, the increases in our budget. Um, this is our, you know, some Chapter 70 formula trends. This goes back to Ed Reform in 1993. Um, you know, this is showing the foundation budget in the blue. Um, the Chapter 78 again, which is you know, been flat over a number of years. Um, and then what our net school spending and spending and actual net school spending are um, over that span of time. So Tri-County's enrollment, um, we go back to 2020. Um, that would have been the students that would have been in the building of 10-1-18, actually. Um, if you, if you, or 10-1-20. Um, if you look at that, 981, we, we dropped off. We had you know, three consecutive years of reductions there in our enrollment. Um, so 2024, those are the students at 10-122, reverse that trend. Um, we're up to 935 students um, district-wide. Um, we do have a, a substantial special ed population and we have co-taught classrooms. Um, that's an expensive model to deliver uh, special ed services. Um, but we vary you know, from the 30 to 32% range on a yearly basis um, with special education. So some of the strategies, um, as I mentioned, uh, we have state-of-the-art equipment. It is very expensive. Um, special ed, you try to meet, it, meet the needs of the students in the classroom. Um, building on our pet path success, um, SEL and, and mental health services. 
Um, as Superintendent McGuire mentioned, uh, partnering with the MSBA to build an appropriate future-ready school. Um, improvements to curriculum. Um, we do have robust athletic and extracurricular activities at the school. Um, you know, we, we call that educating the whole child. Um, we continue to work with our member communities to, as an outreach to you know, bring the students to the school who, who really need to be there. Um, some of what John mentioned for the Aggie School, similar, we have some of those similar students that thrive in the vocational setting, but maybe not necessarily in a comprehensive school. Um, so our budget, 4.19% uh, increase overall. Um, you can see 64% of our budget is funded through town assessments. Um, about 28, 29% with Chapter 70 and uh, transportation reimbursement from the state. Uh, that's just the graph of the same. Um, here's a little look at our student enrollment. Um, so Franklin had an additional seven students. Franklin is the second largest um, sender of students to the, to the school. 164 students in the budget uh, year for 2024. Um, Non-resident enrollment, um, you'll see a drop there. That's, that was intentional. Um, we had a number of applicants from the in-district um, that filled our seats for the freshman class. Um, some of that we've identified as an eighth grade bump in, in just demographics and the number of students. Um, but I, I also feel that some of that is recognizing career tech education and the benefits of that and what, what that can do for you um, as you move forward. So here's our district assessments amongst the 11 communities. Um, you can see that the three communities that have decreases in their assessment are the, are the you know, communities that had a decrease in their enrollment. So you know, it certainly makes sense. Um, our, Spending, um, you can see obviously instruction is our largest 58, 59% of our expenses. Um, our total budget for fiscal 24, 23,414,519. Um, this is you know, graphed. Um, this is just a different way looking at the budget by object. Um, you can see we're a very human organization. About 78% of our budget is salaries and employee benefits. Um, that would be typical of most schools uh, in the Commonwealth. Uh, these are just some statistics related to Franklin um, you know, over the 10-year period. Um, you've had a decrease in enrollment from the high of 231 in fiscal 15 um, to this year we're, we're budgeting 164. Um, and here's what it looks like um, graph. So it's a slight, slight trend downward, but some of that followed our trend um, downward for enrollment. Um, this is just the Chapter 70 formula for the town as a whole. Um, the required minimum contribution allocated back based on the students to Norfolk County, Aggie, Tri-County, and Franklin Public Schools. And if you look at our budget, um, particularly for, for any of our communities, most of the budget is made up of the state required, um, required minimum contribution. Um, we assess um, 83,000 for Franklin above the minimum, and we have our net transportation and capital and debt assessment. So the total assessment, fiscal 24, $2,674,447, $134,000 increase over the prior year. Um, so there's a, a great picture of uh, Governor Baker who came to visit the school in October, I believe. Um, 
made a great impression on the students. He's very interested in career tech education. He's been a big supporter of not only Tri-County, but all the vocational schools in the state. Uh, bottom, middle, that's our wrestling team undefeated this past season. Uh, Except okay. two years in a row. Glad to get that <laughs> so that was a brief, I hope, hopefully brief overview of the budget for fiscal 24. I have a question. It might be a Jamie question as well, because they're showing the um, budget of two six, and we have it in as two seven. Yeah, do Mr. Chairman. So all all of state aid numbers. Every year we've done this, and this is just how a lot of a lot of towns do uh, their assumptions. Um, is we use House One from the governor, and they put their budget out. In this case, it's a little later because. It's governor, but usually it's in January, this year it's being in March. And then we come back, as everybody knows, in November. You know, this year we'll end up doing another budget rewrite probably in the summer, is my guess, to make sure we capture as much revenue and get the numbers as accurate as possible, just obviously giving the competing uh, challenges that we talked about on Monday and we're going to talk about tonight and tomorrow. Um, and so the numbers that are in there, and Tri-County is a part of that, just like the Aggie School is a part of that, we just go to the cherry sheet and the finance director plucks out the numbers you know, from top to bottom, bottom to top, put, plugs them in the model, and that's what we use here. Those numbers will unquestionably change. Usually they are not very dramatic, um, and so I didn't capture what the other number was on the, the, the chart there. I think maybe the assessment might even be a little lower. Yeah, um, that's, that's the one I was talking yeah. about. And so we'll readjust the actual figures when the state finalizes its budget, likely in July. There's always a lot of talk this time of the year about the how much is spent per student. What is your number? It's about sixteen thousand dollars per student. I think statewide that is it's about twelve thousand seven hundred. Uh, but as I've mentioned, vocational schools, the equipment we need to purchase is, costs more to run a, a vocational school than a comprehensive school. It's roughly comparable to what public schools are not state. It's in the ballpark. The, the difference that we'll see is with the building project. So certainly, um, to try to build a facility like the training facility that Tri-County is with 16 career and tech programs along with a regular comprehensive high school piece, it is uh, a lot, a higher, a higher uh, price range than you'd find in a comprehensive school. So that's why we're talking about the $280 million range. We currently have legislation, and uh, you know Jamie knows this, and we um, have been working with our legislators to, to try to implore upon the Mass uh, School Building Authority to reimburse at a higher rate for vocational school building projects. Right now, we're, re <laughs> we're reimbursed at the same rate as a, as a comprehensive high school or, or an elementary school even, even though the project itself will cost a lot more money to, to build. There are nine schools currently, vocational schools, in the MSBA pipeline, and they impact 119 communities, just like Franklin. And all of those 119 communities are in the same situation where they're trying to figure out how are we going to be able to fit this in with our, our elementary or high school or fire station or police station or what have you. Uh, so, so our legislation is asking for an increase in the reimbursement and for two seats on the MSBA Board of Directors, two additional seats, 
uh, that would be able to weigh into the conversation when they start talking about reimbursement rates, uh, to be able to just be the voice of, of what we need for these schools. It impacts, it impacts everyone. So. The bill is currently uh, ready to be scheduled with the, um, the Joint Committee on Education. It's made it through approval with both the House and the Senate. And um, once we have a date for the hearing, we'll let the town administrators know so that people can get back on and lobby to, uh, to, to say that they support the legislation. So of the $280 million, do we have like an idea of like per roughly percentage what you'll get back in reimbursements? Because then I assume the rest of the bill gets allocated amongst the participating towns. Mm -hmm. That's right. So it looks about $100 million right now is what we're, what we're thinking. Uh, but again, we'll know better in June exactly what that, what that number looks like. And can you remind me, when are we thinking this project will kick off? I know we probably talked about it in November. So that's fine. No, no. So it'll, if the, the, we'll get the final scope and budget approval. We'll, we'll know what the number is in June. But then at the August 31st, 30th, 31st MSBA Board of Directors meeting, they will vote at that meeting to give the final scope and budget, the actual vote to, to give that final scope and budget. And from that point, we have 120 days to have a town, a, a district-wide election for the residents to come out to vote for the project. We've been working with the town clerks, and they've scheduled uh, or, or anticipate to schedule October 24th as the date for the town, uh, the district-wide election. Uh, and what that means basically is that in all 11 of our communities, the residents would come out at the same time on the same day and vote yes or no on the project. Provided the project's approved, uh, we anticipate that in that, that, that later that fall to break ground and the building would be completed in 2027. And I assume you need just majority vote to pass Majority vote of all residents that come out to vote. So it's not Franklin, if Franklin votes yes, yes and Medway votes no, and so North Alabama votes, it's not by town, right. If you picture all 11 of the tri-county communities as one great big town, it's the combination of all of those people that come out to vote. Yeah, majority of the, of the people that come out to vote. So you could have an overwhelming yes in one community, an overwhelming no in another that would get it. So uh, Sherman votes no, Franklin votes yes. Yes. We were obviously very Sherman in terms of numbers. So that's a, that's a yes overall? 50% plus one. Huh? Fifty percent plus one. Oh, cumulative. Towns, cumulative. Individual. Cumulative. So, with regard to the assessments to the towns for the school bill, what's the formula that each town gets assessed as an equal? It, it's based on enrollment. Based on it's based on ten one enrollment. Um, so, I saw the enrollment numbers kind of fluctuate. So, it will fluctuate on a yearly basis. So, there is another piece of legislation <laughs> that talks about averaging. Uh, and doing the bill based on an average of five years. Um, that's, and Dan, Dan's been a fan of that for a long time. Yeah. That way people know what they're looking at year to year and you don't have this up and down, up yeah. and down. Smooths out the process. Right. Yeah. right. How do you get your students? Do they reach out or do you send folks to the various districts and schools? Or? 
So we have a, we have a lot of legacy students. You know, they'll come because their parents came, or brothers and sisters, and so forth. Uh, but we do uh, under under the law, we do we do uh, have the requirement to come out and present to the seventh and eighth graders, and then we have an open house that we that we run, so the kids can come to the campus and see and see what we offer. This might be a question for you, Jamie. And so if so it's two hundred and eighty million dollars, right? Say we get a hundred million dollars reimbursement, then we're a large part of the school. Less than half though. But what happens when the towns vote yes for the project, but then the t how does that work with then the town dynamics to not fund the project? Like do you have to like how do you reconcile the two? I always say this, we talk so much about no. projects and like this feels like something that needs to be talked about more, maybe? Right. I don't know. So through Mr. Chairman, um, so a couple of things. One, most towns will likely go out and do a tax exclusion. And, you know, I mean I think in the I mean, I think I hope everybody's aware by now, if not my Monday presentation <laughs> after tonight, after tomorrow, that the wish list that the town has is so overwhelmingly higher than the money we have. The assessment, given the fact that Franklin's a larger community, right, and we'll we'll take to John's point that that share, um, you know, we ha obviously have to look at the numbers. We're very fortunate in our form of government here in Franklin with a town council and council manager form of government, where every two weeks we can have a mini town meeting. So you know, we can work with those numbers. We can look at the budget. We'll obviously have to see what our assessments are, what the final MSBA. So I. I know that the average resident today everywhere wants to know how much am I going to pay, right? But it would be a little premature to even start throwing numbers out there, and I don't feel very comfortable about that. And so to know what the total price tag is um, is also going to depend on interest rates at that moment. I don't foresee them getting better soon, but you know, uh, you never know. So the all likelihood is you, the, the town would do a debt exclusion um, on a regularly scheduled election, which is a whole other strategy of a rabbit hole we won't go down. But just to contrast, if you're a smaller community where you only where you only have town meeting once a year, um, these can be more challenging um, in terms of how they finance things. And I think Superintendent McGuire and everybody else is certainly conscientious of the fact that um, the town managers in some of the adjacent communities, um, in some of the smaller communities that George pointed out, you know, um, the smaller communities may have the capacity in Sherman to be able to pay for it out of their budget. But those mid-sized communities where they don't have regularly scheduled elections or they can't maneuver as much, they have great less flexibility within their budgets. Um, those are going to be huge challenges, and, and Superintendent McGuire is probably more primed to answer that question. But make no mistake, I mean, some of our neighboring communities are struggling with this question right now. Um, but in Franklin, you know, we do have a little more flexibility. We do have elections in November. Remember, every other town has them in April or May or, or, or March, which is challenging as well, right? Because there are metrics on when to do elections and what are successful, what's not successful. Um, springtime, for example, is usually more popular. Um, you know, fall can sometimes be dicey. But you know, it is a good question. If 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 eight of the towns vote yes to finance something, I think the inconvenient truth is is that those towns that where the project does go through, if they don't find a way to finance it, I think there are going to be some devastating, likely some very devastating cuts. To those other communities in terms of general services or other school services in those communities. Is that an accurate, is that generally accurate? So yeah, I think that the, the, we've tried to get out early 
to yeah. talk about this. Again, it's 2000, we're talking about 2027. We've been on the road now for the two years that I've been here and, and Dan before me to talk to all of the communities about what's what's happening with this building. It's a broken building, it needs to be fixed. There was no, <clears throat> there was no way around that piece of it. The, um, how to pay for it is up to each individual community. Some communities have, uh, as, as, as Jamie said, um, found a way within, or they believe that they'll, they'll find a way within their, within their means to be able to finance the building. Others are talking about having to do um, a debt exclusion to pay for it, uh, which again, I'll, bring, I'll come back to the legislation piece of it. If we, it, it's not just here in Franklin, it's 119 communities right now, there are only 26 career and vote schools in the Commonwealth. And if nine are in the pipeline now, it stands to reason that the, the rest will be coming shortly. They're all built at the same time. So virtually everywhere will be impacted by a vocational building project at some point. So it would stand to reason that uh, our legislative body would come to uh, a <coughs> consensus that we need to be able to do something. I live in Carver, and I've, I've talked about this a lot. I live in Carver, and our vocational school is Old Colony. Old Colony has 500 students. Tri-County has 1,000. So the impact of the building project at O'Colony, which is two years behind where we are, we're looking at 280 million, they'll be looking at 310 million. The impact over 500 kids in those communities, I'll tell you the town of Carver is you know, not an affluent community. And uh, so, so from a taxpayer standpoint, you know, I, I know, I know what, that, what that could look like, uh, which is why I think that the legislation is so important. We've tried to also advocate, I think I said this quickly offline, but just for the record and for everybody else, we've also tried to advocate for our customer service friendly model here, recognizing people only have so many, so much time to go to vote. We've been working, although I don't know if it will be successful because I understand the precedent in a sense, but we've been trying to work on some sort of legislative relief where the vote for the financial authorization could be at the same day as the vote for the authorization of the school. I don't think that's going to be likely, and I understand from the state's perspective, you know, it's a dangerous kind of road, new path to build, but I think I would speak for most voters. I think people on a school project especially, if there's one thing, right, that people would love to go out and vote for once, thinking they're authorizing the project and the financing to go with it, I think that's something the state has to consider for this project, it might pass by, but future ones, making people go out twice is just really ridiculous. And they got to fix that. And I understand why they do that. And I understand going back 50, 40, 50 years. But you know, um, to get uh, school projects authorized in this manner, especially with debt exclusions, if people are going out to support the project, they're likely going out to support the financing to go with it. Why are we making people go out twice? And that's the case to your point, Nicole. If you go out in October to authorize the project, some people may think they're voting for the whole project and not realize they had to go out in March to go vote for the financing of it in the middle of sleet and rain and snow. And, and truly, those things that kind of sometimes make people not want to go out. Um, so we've tried to work with them. We've had very active conversations with Tri-County and the clerks and other managers. Um, you know, we have been working with our legislators, both Reparoy, uh, Senator Spill, for everybody. has been very open in meeting with us, talking with us about it. It is a tough issue, but we have been trying to work on that just for the public to know that <laughs> we respect that. Uh, it's a challenging thing. So. Yeah, because the, um, the law that governs that type of election, 16N under Chapter 70, is, is, uh, was established back when the district agreement was written 50 years ago. So it talks about, um, and, and I'll use Tri-County again as the example, 
it talks about how the regional school district, again, if you look at all 11 communities as one town, what the authorization of the governing board of that regional school has the authorization to do. So that would mean Tri-County School Committee only has the authorization to bond the debt for the school and not say how it's paid for by each individual town. Right which is why that ballot question is only about whether or not you support the building project, not about how it will be paid for in Franklin or Sherburn or North Attleboro. It's specific only to the building project, and it is, everyone's asked that same question. Yeah, yeah, Jamie, sorry about that. Mr. Chairman, if I could just clarify one item that I, I know, I met, you mentioned the per pupil cost. I, I gave you the, the per pupil cost for your assessment for Franklin. Our per pupil cost is about twenty-two thousand. Sixteen thousand is the net per pupil cost per for Franklin. After our other revenue. Okay, but let's see. The overall. The overall is twenty two about twenty two two. Big difference. Yeah, big difference, yeah. Yeah. The net cost after ch deducting chapter seventy eight that's applicable to to the town of Franklin is, brings it to sixteen three. Yeah, our gross gross costs are twenty two two. Okay. Any questions from Mr. Sherlock? Thank you. Uh, Steve Sherlock, Franklin Matters, Community Reporter. Thanks for the information around the financing, and I understand all that's complicated. Good luck, because I think you're the first one's gone through it as well. One of the other pieces that you mentioned, and Norfolk Aggie mentioned as well, clearly with climate change coming, this technical need for skilled people is going to be growing and growing and growing and yet you're only budgeting for the thousand not more has that been part of the discussion I'm assuming it has but can you elucidate on that too yeah that's a great point people do ask us that and um, but the way that the so so we're going through the process with the MSBA um, in order to be able to get the maximum amount of reimbursement and what what that starts when you start with that, pro that process, they look at the enrollment trends of the 11 communities and make sure that this building that we're building for 50 years uh, isn't a waste of building money uh, for, for a, a, a facility that would be too large to house the need for the students in the area. So this school uh, was approved to stay at 1,000 based on the enrollment trends in the 11 communities that sent to Tri-County even though we have a waiting list and even though we have a substantial number of students from out of the district trying to trying to apply uh, we're still based on what the msba approval rate was uh, maxed at a thousand anyone else good up here. thank you all right thank, thank you. you very much thank you i'll see you in a couple of weeks with some real numbers <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Karen. Thanks, Good Thanks to see Thanks you. I can pop this up and have it. Sure. Let me do that. Excuse me.
for the uh, for the members, I, I just uh, Lucas had sent a slideshow um, about an hour ago or so, and I just forwarded the PDF version to everybody, so everybody does have a copy, and we will add it to the, uh, the budget uh, town budget webpage tomorrow. Thank you. All right. Good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for having us this evening, and uh, thank you for the service you do, all the finance committee members for the town of Franklin. My name is Dave McNeil, I'm a school committee member here, and I have the privilege of serving as the budget subcommittee chair, joined tonight by Superintendent Lucas Shagir and School Business Administrator Miriam Goodman. So we on the Franklin School Committee are charged by our community to care for the Franklin Public School System and provide the best possible educational experience for every student that comes through our doors. And we take that responsibility very seriously. And it's through that lens that we have crafted the budget that we're speaking to you tonight. The modern world and workforce is increasingly more competitive and demanding more and more from young people that are going out into it. For that reason, higher education institutions are demanding more of their graduates and in turn creating us to need to raise the bar for our standards on our end to prepare them for that. It's for that reason that we in the Frank Public School System are always asking how can we provide better curricula, better services, better programs, better extracurricular activities for them to be more competitive and prepared when they do leave our doors and graduate, not just to survive when they leave, but truly thrive. We want the current generation of Franklin Public School students to have a better educational experience than the ones that came before them. And that really is the promise of every generation to the subsequent generations. Asking the question, how can they leave the world just a little bit better place than they did before them? And how can they make life of the next generation just a little bit better? And that's what we're asking in this budget. We ask that question, how can we make the lives of the next generation Franklin Public School students better than it was the one before them? And that's the philosophy that went into this budget and really every budget that comes from the Franklin Public Schools. And we ask that question for this generation because someone else already asked that question for us. So thank you again for having us. I'm now going to turn it over to Lucas and Miriam. Okay, great. Good evening, everyone. Thank you. It's good to see you all again. Um, we met on December 7th for the deep dive. Thanks for inviting us then. Um, we have a presentation tonight. There are many slides. Some are for reference, so we'll move through them quickly in the spirit of trying to be um, keep everyone's attention. And we'll um, key in on some important information. Some are follow-ups to questions we received during the deep dive um, to just pr provide a little more context. And then we'll provide an opportunity for questions um, at the end, obviously, for, for you. So basically, um, just talking through um, just big picture, zooming out strategy, um, pre-K through age 22. Um, we educate all students. There's no interview process, no application. We get every kid who, uh, who resides in Franklin. And ultimately, uh, pre-K through age 22, we're really working uh, towards these goals. It's called the portrait of a graduate. We talked a bit about this already, um, but ultimately we're trying to shape um, young people that graduate and, and have these skills um, all the way through their development. 
Moving forward to this year, just to kind of zoom in a little bit closer, uh, what were uh, our five areas that we're working towards within the Franklin Public Schools this year at a very, very high level? It's around trying to really create opportunities to support students in growing their social emotional well-being, right? Make, helping them to become healthy people and have strategies and skills to manage that. Also, the academic side of things, looking at having engaging and rigorous curriculum for kids to learn and access throughout their development all the way through um, through high school. And ultimately, trying to make sure that we're providing uh, the top quality instruction that this town has come to expect from Franklin Public Schools and the reputation we have um, uphold, to uphold that and also um, do right by our students so they're prepared as they enter, as Mr. McNeil mentioned. Moving forward, talking through communication and really trying to partner with our, our families and community and uh, really keeping an eye on equity to make sure every student who walks through that door gets the opportunity to be educated um, with the same um, opportunities as everyone. We've really, really worked hard this year to align our systems, looking at the district level um, through uh, each of the levels, middle school, <coughs> high school, elementary, and at the school level, and we've created some really coordinated efforts for, for planning to streamline our goals and to really work towards making sure that we're providing an opportunity for students. In Franklin, we have 10 schools. We have five elementaries, we have three middle, and one high school. So by the time students hit high school, they could have gone through a combination of elementary and middle. So it's really important to us that every student as they move through each level um, gets the opportunity to be educated uh, in an equitable way so that they arrive at freshman year as one class at Franklin High School with those skills along the way. And our teachers do an excellent job of, of making that happen. Just thinking about priorities, you know, one thing that we've experienced, you know, um, despite some enrollment de decrease, We've seen an increase in um, the students' mental health and really trying to help students as they navigate the school day. We've also seen some gaps in, a in academics that we continue to try to solve um, and work um, through some really high quality, I'll call it tier one, but for the, for the example here is what are we providing every kid in classroom instruction and really trying to beef that up. And uh, looking at meeting students' needs with special education and uh, our social emotional health as I mentioned. I'll just pause there for a minute to just say um, we have not only a legal obligation, but we have a moral responsibility for kids as they come through Franklin, Franklin Public Schools. And um, I mentioned earlier, we, we educate all, and I am also a community member, I'm a parent in this town, um, I live in this town as well, and I dropped my own daughter off at her middle school, and to see vans roll up, students get out in wheelchairs, to see refugee families who've moved into town, um, go into class and get educated and get the language-based goals so that they can continue to learn and acquire the language. And uh, to have students who just arrived yesterday to you know, fourth-generation Franklin families all converging on a school to be educated, uh, and the only thing that we ask is that they call Franklin home, is really uh, important to, to me, and it's important to the folks that work within our school system to try to really meet kids where they're at and do the best that we can. In order to do that, you need the systems to support it. And you've heard me, you might have heard me say this, I know uh, Mr. Helen has and, and many of the people behind me at, at different things. You know, you can have every goal, it's from Atomic Habits, it's a book um, that's out by James Clear, but ultimately you can have all the loftiest or the best goals in the world, but if you don't have systems to support those goals, you, um, you fall short. And we're really trying to talk about tonight, when we think about systems, we're trying to provide um, those for our kids. And that's why we're advocating for um, the resources that we are. I will um, move through these. These are some national and Franklin impacts to uh, students. 
because I want to focus in on some of the key pieces here. When we think about elementary, this came up on December 7th. Um, the question was asked about some of the folks that work with kids beyond teachers. And one thing that we try to do in preparation for tonight was try to come and, and present and share some of this information. So you'll notice here, uh, this is a, basically a profile of, of, of a pre-K student, someone who is in our early childhood center in pre-K. The next is a, a third grader and then a fifth grader. So these students come, you'll notice that uh, the pre-K student has a learning disability. All of them are being educated by a classroom teacher in some capacity. At the elementary level, uh, elementary teachers teach multiple subjects, right? The four main subjects they have to learn and master and educate. And beyond that, in each of these cases, you'll have a kid who has a learning disability and needs an, an individualized education plan. So a special educator will also join that team to educate students and provide instruction. We may have to provide transportation. Could be a van, means you need a van driver, and it means that you have to really coordinate that along the way to provide that for students. And then at the bottom, you'll notice all of the different <coughs> folks that may interact in a school day that work with a kid, an occupational therapist to work on maybe mobility or, or different items, oh, I'm sorry, different skills. And then uh, you'll notice speech and language, or it could just be uh, a variety of different personnel that we have within our building to educate. To just move forward in that same theme, the third and fifth graders, you'll notice they have different um, things occurring, but a third grader who comes to us with a trauma background might need counseling support, behavioral support. We may be collaborating with Department of Children and Families. And then at the bottom, you'll notice the safety teams involved, a school adjustment counselor, a social worker may be working with that family to connect them to outside supports beyond the school. And finally is a fifth grader with, with some lagging skills. Maybe a um, more, more typical student ultimately is in a class where they're looking at exploring STEM. We're trying to provide a literacy intervention because maybe we've identified an area. And ultimately, if you see at the bottom, there are math and literacy specialists that are working to identify students and what their needs are and then provide support and work with teachers on that. You have digital learning integrations. You know, we, we hear a lot about students and you know, we all grew up in an age where Technology was kind of something we added to our life. Students today are brought up in an environment where technology is basically like an appendage. Um, so there is different levels of support that we're expected to provide for kids um, around that. The safeties, the dangers, the appropriateness of it. And I think we're all given the tools to do that, but oftentimes we don't have the training and, and support needed to do that well. Just to keep moving. Sixth, seventh, and eighth. Uh, in each of these examples, once again, I'll just give a minute of pause because uh, you have a seventh grade teacher no matter what. There's, a, there's an educator in front of those kids. But based on the needs, you'll notice below, there's different groups of people that are working to help kids. And I'll just call your attention to the eighth grade example where we have a student who's learning English. It's their second language. They're in classes across the board, an eighth grade class for history and math, and they have a language goal, and they have a teacher who specializes in trying to help them understand our language, and the general ed teacher who's teaching. The math teacher is also trained and has received an endorsement to do the same so that they're modifying lessons to meet those needs. This particular kid also stays after school for clubs, and uh, we offer that as well for kids. Finally, uh, the 18 to 22 year old program uh, post 
a high school, right? This is a special, specially designed instruction. They might have an offsite job coach, kids who are uh, ages age to 22. Um, we try to make sure that we are providing opportunities within our community for um, vocation, for work, um, life skills, and that all takes support and takes personnel to do those things. Um, once again, you'll notice occupational therapy and special education. In the middle, we have a student who was hospitalized and transitioning back, um, who needs some counseling support, maybe is taking some electives that we've um, offered in the past around art and music, um, is in a program um, to continue to transition into the high school, and also maybe may in the band, is in the jazz band and DECA, and this is a typical this is a profile of a student that would receive these types of support from these types of folks. You'll see guidance on there. Um, every student has a guidance counselor at our high school who is working with them on their individual goals, whether they're college bound or working towards um, a two-year college military work after. There's just a variety of ways in which we're trying to help prepare students. And then finally, we have a student who um, maybe is homeless, so we're providing transportation in accordance with the, the regulations to get them to and from school, but they participate in athletics. They're in senior project. We are, they're in mock trial, and then those are the types of folks that work with them throughout the day. So um, just thought it was important to highlight because we talked about this on December 7th, and um, when we walked away, I thought I needed to provide a tangible example of, of how this works. So we spent time on chapter 70 during the deep dive. Um, so this is just a very big overview of it, but this time what we thought we would do is we have actual numbers now that we can apply to the formula, which is the next slide, and I'll kick it to Miriam Goodman to walk through. Yeah, so at a high level, uh, the state identifies and calculates a foundation budget, which is um, a funding level that um, would provide an adequate level of education to our students in Franklin. Um, it's based on our enrollment, um, a wage adjustment factor, and inflation. Uh, and you can see that's the $65.2 million number. From that, they decide what can Franklin afford to pay. That's the required local contribution in the green box. Um, that's based on property wealth and income um, and the municipal revenue growth factor. The states determine that that amount is $47.2 million. So from the 65 less the 47, you would generally get a number close to $18 million based on the formula. That's um, how much the Chapter 70 formula would fund for Franklin. But Franklin um, is already receiving $29 million, roughly $20, um, $29 million. That's where the excess base aid is coming from that is held harmless. So we're already getting almost $11 million more than the formula allows for us. And that's as a result of the formula that was established in the 90s um, when our enrollment was much lower. So we're a minimum aid district. We're only going to get what's um, identified in the law, which is $30 per pupil at this point in time. I will tell you that the Senate um, budget came out this week uh, and identifies that as $60 ahead. We'll see that finalized sometime in July. Uh, so there might be another $153,000 coming into the town. hasn't been uh, identified, hasn't been finalized yet. But right now we're banking on the first $153,000 as part of our minimum aid. Um, so from that, they uh, will, the state will take our Chapter 78 of 29 million and expect us to contribute the 47 million that they've identified, and then our net, our net school spending 
uh, would be that total $76.2 million in the bottom gray box. Um, and net school spending is the amount that um, we are required to um, spend on education for the students in Franklin. Uh, we are spending um, more than that, right? We are spending 13.3% more than that, roughly $9.4 million more uh, than we're required to spend. Uh, but the, the key factor is that, that the majority of districts in Franklin spend um, on average, I'm sorry, in Massachusetts, uh, spend on average 43% uh, more than that school spending. So 75% um, are spending more than the 13.3 that we are. So we put together a graph, because uh, one of the questions that came up December 7th when we had the deep dive was, well, we're spending um, over the amount, right, the amount over, um, and we thought we would just provide uh, a comparison to just, just put the Hockamock League out there. That's something we all know, can wrap our heads around, just to provide a little bit of context to where we fall within that range. So you'll see all the teams that we uh, play against in the Hockamock League as examples to kind of where Franklin falls. The percentage, 13.3, Miriam referenced once again. Um, this is the Hockamock League, uh, just as a comparison to show you that percentage amount. So from dollars to percentages, 13.3. The state average is closer to 42 or 43, as Miriam mentioned. So uh, the, in, you can see by this slide, it's a summary of the Chapter 70. You, you might have seen it earlier in the presentation um, <coughs> by our predecessors. Um, our enrollment is declining overall 1.47%. Um, that's the trend that we're seeing right now. Our foundation budget is going up as a result of the Student Opportunity Act. It's going to continue to go up, uh, as well as the retired required district contribution uh, as long as the foundation budget continues to go up and the enrollment continues to go down the required district contribution is also going to go up and as long as our chapter 78 is is 11 million dollars over the formulaic amount that we are required that um, we would get we're still going to be required to contribute more towards the foundation budget uh, and that just graphically uh, presents that. Uh, that will cap out at 82.5%. I expect that roughly 2028 or so. So in terms of per-pupil spending, um, we talked about that uh, at our last meeting. We heard a little bit about that from Tri-County. It's spending $22,000 per pupil. Our average is $15,982. Uh, in district compared to the state's 18,005. Um, we are uh, in the 20th percentile. 80% of districts in Massachusetts spend more than we do. On the other side of that coin, in terms of local effort, effort from wealth, 12% um, of cities and towns have a greater local effort from income wealth than Franklin. So we talked about the state averages in terms of per pupil, 16% below the state average. 
and then again comparison uh, to some of our Hockenock League districts. Um, we're at $15,982. Hard to see some of those others, um, but you can see where we fall in the graph um, in terms of their per pupil uh, expenditures. So uh, in terms of su summarizing our FY24 budget, um, at this point, the school committee has approved a budget in the amount of $73,591,000. That's a $3.37 million increase, uh, or 4.8% over our current FY23 budget. Uh, this is some historical data as to the superintendent's requested budget versus how much the town council has allocated towards the schools in the past five years. In terms of the assumption in this budget, um, as you know, uh, the town administrator's recommended increase in the allocation from the town is $1,031,954. That's a 1.47% increase over our FY23 budget. Uh, our budget includes health insurance rate increases of 5.2%. It includes the 14% required out-of-district private school tuition rate increase as set by the Operational Services Division for Specialized Placements in Private Schools for out-of-district tuition, uh, out-of-district placement services. Um, other out-of-district tuition rate increases are coming in somewhere in the 5 to 10% range. Our transportation that we're required to provide for students in out-of-district placements, as well as um, our big yellow buses for in-district students that we are uh, required to transport, as well as others. Uh, those rate increases are, are going up about 8%. And we are increasing the use of our one-time revolving funds by $1.5 million so for a total of about $7.1 million. You'll see on the later slide. Here's a graphic representation of the 14%. Um, one thing, I know a bill has been filed. Uh, we met with legislators to try to um, mitigate this. Nothing's been uh, finalized or been communicated to us around this, but this just gives a little bit of context of what districts were expecting to pay, um, and then to see the 14% increase. You'll notice in the bottom left corner of the slide, how that translates to Franklin is an increase of, well, the to a total amount of $775,000. So um, again, um, just to summarize uh, five the major categories uh, in terms of the 24 approved budget at 73.5 million, uh, you can you can see where the differentials are. The majority being in salaries, uh, 2.9 mil. It's a, again a 3.3 million dollar um, budget uh, increase over FY23, and um, obviously we're aware that the the council's allocate uh, that the town administrator's recommendation is 71.2 million dollars. So um, we'll see some of that. Um, largest piece of the budget being salaries and uh, health care and medical, medical, excuse me, Medicare costs, um, roughly 87% of the budget. Uh, out of district tuition at 5.7%, other expenses at 3.7%, transportation at 3.2%, overall 4.8% um, increase. So, so some of these investment emissions we're going to go through, we'll go through these slides pretty quickly um, because I, I'm sure the burning question in your head is that, you know, at a $73 million 
budget that the school committee has approved and a $71 million allocation that the town, that the town administrator is recommending, I'm guessing that one of the questions you might have is how are we going to get from here to there? So these are items that were included in the superintendent's recommended budget um, that you'll see. They, um, at this point, have all been um, removed. Uh, these are items, though, if you just stop right there, those are items that the um, additional requests that were not included in the superintendent's budget, but the school committee approved, uh, including them in the budget, which brought it to 73.5 million. And those items are all being removed. Um, so when we look at the next slide, you'll see a summary of the reductions that we're looking at. Um, the first two items being uh, reductions from investment initiatives, basically all of the, the new initiatives that you just saw on the past four or five slides, plus the new investment initiatives that the school committee added. Um, the other three categories, largely speaking, reducing services, reducing positions, uh, and raising revenues. Uh, so those are looking, those are the, <coughs> the budget reductions that we are looking at at this point. Nothing's been finalized, uh, but that's a summary of the positions that we're looking at to, to reduce uh, in order to meet the allocation based on the recommendation of the town administrator at 71.25. No. With that said, I just would add the, the, the recommended allocation it's going to impact us greatly. And I just want to put that out there. You know, we all have roles to play, right? Um, we all serve in different ways. Mine is to advocate for our district, but also our students. And that number um, will result in us seeing a reduction in not only force and people, but in the level of service that this town has come to expect of us um, across this community. And um, we are at a place where we're really trying to feel the best team we can right with the budget that we have but i would be remiss if i did not um, say that and this is just an example without getting into any detail around we're still working we, we put a lot of time in um, through this budget process when we had proposed the number um, the most recent number from the recommendation from the town administrator we spent um, over 20 hours trying to look at all the different areas that we can work as a team um, but at the end of the day, I just would want to, to call to some of the things on here around the programming that we are known for, what we offer for kids, whether it's in school, after school, extracurriculars, um, basically in a, in a company that has a research and development department to continue to stay active. Um, those are some areas, if you'll notice in here, it's committee work, summer work, site-based funds reductions, looking at different programming, um, late buses for after school, and uh, ultimately some of the FTEs, which is your um, full-time equivalent, so teaching positions, uh, or not just teaching positions, because it's district, elementary, middle, and high school. So um, to balance the, the budget and get to that number, it took, um, it's taking a lot for us to, to get there. Uh, and I just wanted to put that out there as kind of the impact, and I think that's what you know, we wanted to get across as we move forward. These slides, I would just call to. Um, one question that's come up, it was raised before, kind of what types of reductions have we had over time? And we've, um, we did the exercise of, of that, and I thought as this was requested, it made sense to put this in um, for you to review as well, but for also for folks to kind of understand over time the types of um, reductions that have had to be made to, to make budgets. And 
you know, um, we understand that being efficient is important and having um, the right people in the right places and the right types of supports for kids and systems is important. But over time, to, to put, the, put a system together that meets the needs of the community and meets the goals of trying to educate kids is, is really that challenge. And I think that's why we're here tonight and just to advocate for some of the things along the way. Um, this is really the, uh, this is the end of the presentation and um, we're happy to open it up to questions. <clears throat> Sure. From what I read in the, on the internet of um, the budget, the quoted uh, number of pupils was 4712 or something like that. But the size indicated 5150. Yeah, it was, I read it twice. So the slides on the Department of Ed are, are based on enrollment that's two years back. Okay, so the Department of Ed's Chapter 70 enrollment is based on two years ago's enrollment. We're building a budget based on 4,600 in terms of projections. Um, I would also say that the slides on the, uh, on the DASI website will include students who are residents of Franklin um, and are, um, um, I have to say, give me a second, in a um, charter school because they're impacted through the assessments and um, uh, the Teca, Teca Academy, mm -hmm. the uh, online. So they're residents. Um, I'm not gonna say Tri-County and Orifa Academy because you saw them and they have an allocation based on enrollment in Franklin on their specific enrollment. So they're separate in that respect even though the Chapter 70 money comes to Franklin and then it's divided to a portion to Tri-County and to Norfolk Agagi as well as to Franklin Public Schools. But uh, the portion coming to Franklin Public Schools includes a portion of, um, of revenue for Franklin residents that might not be attending Franklin schools. <coughs> See, that was simple. <laughs> 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 right. It was an easy question. We're budgeting for 4,600 to show up on our doorstep. And our enrollment and our projections based on classroom size, class sections at the elementary level, at the middle level, at the high school level, based on um, 4,602. 4,602. Okay, and here it's projection. Projections. Yeah, somewhere in the 8,000 pages that I read. Um, questions? I'll tell you what you've been. Is there any, has there been any effort, I'm sure there's been an effort, I won't say that, to, you know, here's the, the box we're stuck in. Is, it, is there any direction to get outside the box to solve some of these problems? And is there a place outside the box to do that? And I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, the police department thought outside the box, changed the entire scheduling of, of how many hours a week the officers work, and adjusted with the union's help down to 10 hours from 42, I think, or maybe 48. Fire department did the same thing on reorganizing and creating creating money 
for additional staff. Is there any effort to think outside the traditional box? I, I can't speak for my colleagues from the police and fire department um, and how they do it, but um, for public schools, we're in a model where we don't operate, like we don't, we couldn't do shifts of kids come at night and, and during the day, right? So that's one thing I would say. So thinking about schedule, we, you may recall some start time conversations we had to shift uh, start times um, by an hour. And um, I would just tell you. Yeah, so that, that, that has happened before, though. Right. What's that? Shifts. Shifts in education. I would say I wouldn't recommend um, an educational model of double shifts in a school system uh, in, in 2023. Um, I would say, and I say that not sarcastically, but just that wouldn't be my recommendation. But um, we continue to try to meet the needs of every kid. Like I said, we can't increase our tuition in, in that kind of model. We don't have the ability to do any type of, um, of shifts. I, I don't think that's uh, uh, feasible or recommended um, for what we're trying to do. And um, we work to schedule, like student schedules, teacher schedules, to, to accommodate all the needs and all of the, the demands that we have across the, our school. But um, it's, it's difficult to, to get a question for us to think outside the box after we just presented multiple slides about how we've been really underfunded for a long time. And I'm not pointing fingers at any particular person, but it's hard to be in the seat and say, what can we do differently? How can we save more money when we're already um, showing some, some information that shows how we're funded? And I, make, I call this as a call out to our community about that kind of support because it's just a, a difficult question to figure out how we would do that. I will tell you, creatively, visioning, um, we're trying to work through getting our early college, and, early college and career opportunities for students. It takes a schedule that permits that and supports that for kids to be able to have the classes they need. As we look to continue to build out, we have a senior project program that's at our high school. Um, we want to provide STEM education. We talked a little bit earlier, I think Mr. Sherlock asked a question around some of the um, industries that are continuing to evolve and wanting to prepare students and have access to those. If we continue to, we're, we're actually having conversations around how do we keep class sizes less than 25 in an elementary. So it's hard to have the conversation when if we had the support to, um, to do those things, I think I, I would just say that would be my answer to, to the question is around what have we done? We continue to um, create schedules that aren't fluff, do not you know, uh, but ultimately, I just we're going to see an impact to the budget as we continue to do. I've heard others say this before me. I've been in Franklin since 2003. I was a teacher here, assistant principal, and um, as assistant superintendent, and now here in the, in the superintendency, and also a parent and a resident. And um, I just would say I think we have a lot of people doing a lot of great work with the resources we have, but I don't think we should be just relying on what we've been able to do. I think we need to really think about um, how this works, how, what systems need to be in place for ours for, to provide a high level of education. What would be your solution? Where do you get the two million bucks? Well, we had a legislative forum. The same question was basically asked. There was a question of um, um, State Rep Roy around this. Based on our funding, I think we'd have to look at, I think that local contribution is one area um, that I think we would have to look at. The state is not going to. I think we get in this pattern of having conversations around the state coming 
through to change something in our favor where we just showed a slide around we're being held harmless for $10 million. So I don't think the state is going to provide that particular solution. So his, his I don't want to quote him, but if you go back to the tape, it was around, it's not going to happen beyond um, the community. And I use the word community very carefully um, because I think we've used words like town and it gets synonymous with town, town council, this. It's community. And I think we have to have that kind of, those kinds of discussions. Which I guess would just be a tricky sell, right? Because you'd, you'd be going to the town and you'd be saying, we're going to raise your taxes. I and we've had, we've had the in-depth yeah. discussions here, right, to right. understand why, like, sure. what's going into cost, but it's like, you know, it's been getting less and less in kids. It's just a hard ask. Yeah, and be clear, I wouldn't be asking that. I just think, and Mr. Helen and I have talked about that. That's not an ask I have. You asked the question of how do you fund that. I'm just trying to provide context to how this is done. It's gotcha. not something that is a superintendent. Totally, yeah, totally I would be, connecting dots that you're No, no, I just want, you, yeah. I want to be clear on, on record that that's not something that I'm um, suggesting at this moment. I just wanted to be clear about what role I play in this, and it's to advocate for schools and say there are, there are ways that that would happen. So I guess on that front too, thinking about the community, I like that word, right? Mm -hmm. So when we think about taxes and raising taxes, how do we, or how have we, and how are we going forward going to rally the community? So it's not just the schools, it's fire, it's DPW, it's, it's everybody, right? You put two million into the schools, you're taking it from somewhere, from where we are right now, call it taxes flat. So how do we, who's, who charges that? Is it the community going to the town council and holding them accountable? Like, what is the, like, who's the leader here to say, let's rally everyone together? Because I don't know, is it the school committee to have to build further relationships with those other departments to say, hey, we need to show a united front? Have we started that? Is that what we need to do? Like, if that is the solution, which it's sounding like, I'm going to say it is, right? I'm not, this is just, hypothetical and how do we get there because it sounds like we've been talking as you said years about this it feels like we might be at an inflection point or we probably already been at an inflection point but we're saying it a while now it's only going to get worse so how do we how do we move forward to keep action because it will take potentially a couple years or whatever it could be right just curious how we, how we get the process started or at least rally everybody together because it feels you give to one, you take from the other, but I don't think that's how it should be approached. It should be if everybody's bought into building the best community right. in Franklin. I view it as you pull from one department to give to another. Well, if there's an emergency at a school, I sure want an extra police officer there, right? So using that as an example. But so how do we move forward, I guess, from here could be kind of a high level question. Do you want to take that one, Mr. Howell? Sorry, it involves a lot of departments. It's a great question. Like I just like I'm right. an action person. Like, what do we fine. do from here? It's kind of like yeah, kind of off of what that was. So, uh, Miriam, could you or Lucas, could you put the slide up with the breakdown in the 3.37 million? I know the salaries piece will stick out, and I'm not going to focus on that too much. But so to answer your question uh, a little bit, Nicole, part of what you just said is an incredible start. So tomorrow night, I have a few more slides as we talked about uh, last night um, to kind of wrap up. But I, I, before I do those slides, I do think it's important for the Finance Committee to go through all the departments, the entire budget, see where the money is, you know, do the typical deep dives. Tomorrow's public safety regional dispatch, okay? 
Um, ultimately, to answer Natalie's question, you really have three choices, right? You basically either raise property taxes, you either you know, cut municipal funding, which you just pointed to, Nicole, and shift funding from you know, the town departments, if you will, over to the schools. Or the third option is the schools need to redefine exactly what their service delivery is. All three are horrible choices, <laughs> right? They're very challenging. And uh, Natalie pointed out, I mean, the enrollment-based reductions, you know, um, over time, you know, have helped the budget, um, you've been able to solve the budget. I think, as Lucas has always pointed out, Sarah did as well, and Miriam has pointed out, that over the past 15 years, while the school enrollment has plummeted, and will continue to decline, there's no question about that, um, for a variety of reasons. Right? Not just birth rates, not just the boom that was here 20 years ago for all the kids that came through from the housing development, but also there's just a lot of competition. Right? There's a variety of different ways to, to educate kids. And so I just want to point out um, you know, that those are really simply the three choices that you have. And I just want to point out the cost drivers. This is not, just to premise this, this is not my commentary, but this is a structural issue we have seen for 10 years, I've been here eight years, all of you on the committee have heard this. Everyone who's read my boring fiscal forecasts have read this on the first page for, for really a decade, okay? As all of you saw last night, and I think a lot of the other audience members probably watched, I hope they did, I went through a 25 minute presentation on the revenue model, right? And everyone on the finance committee has been through that presentation a couple times now. It's the first page on the budget. And when you go through, ultimately what we decided last night is in the tax base, you have 3.3 million new dollars in new revenue. 3.3 million. The whole community. That's it. Like, the whole, Jeff was legendary, oh, there's money under bags. Or we, there is no other drawers. There's no other bag. So right here alone, and we've went through this, I have consistently said on the record for years, I have never, ever, ever said once the school district or any department should not not ask for what they need. They should always put in the number what they need. And as you see in the numbers that Miriam put up on another chart, typically the request is up in 3.3 million, 3.4, 3 3.5, 3.6, 3.8, a couple. When you have 3.3 million this year, that means 2.5% less last year and back and forth. So the schools have always asked for more money than the entire allotment of new revenue the town has asked. This is not me giving a critique. This is me talking straight facts to try to explain to the public while we have moments like this to make them understand where the cost driver problems are. And when we say what are the options when Natalie and Nicole say what are our choices, Miriam has another couple slides talking about the ability to pay on slide 14. Our ability to pay is a lot less than those other communities. The tax levy in Franklin is very, very low. And a large part of that is just because of, of historical context in terms of what the land values were in Franklin. As land values and property values continue to increase, your property tax bills are going up more than 2.5% per year because your value of your property is going up 17%. And so when you look at this number of 3.37 million, that's greater than the entire revenue pot the town has. Like, it just is what it is. I don't know how else to play it. 
Um, it just is what it is. Um, and last night we saw a slide, and we've done this before at FinCon hearings, of fixed costs. Lights, stormwater, electricity, gas, propane. Um, I put up there last night the municipal you know, staff, 2.5% COLA. Uh, I put up there a whole bunch of other examples. Uh, property and casualty insurance, workers' comp insurance. I put up there a slide with about 17 million or so, and yes, the number could be a little lower, it could be a little higher. But 17 million that's in the municipal side budget for school-related costs, debt exclusions, debt and interest, building projects, um, uh, retiree health insurance for teachers, the town pays out of its uh, kind of, you know, its half of the budget, if you will. But when you look at these cost drivers on the school side, you know, it's not to say they're not needed. It's not to say they're not warranted. Um, I support all of this. But if you're sitting in this chair over here, <laughs> I can't talk hyperbole. I can't say what I want. I have to tell people exactly what it really is. And I think, I hope people, if they didn't watch last night's meeting, um, watch at least the first half hour or so. I hope everybody got some good information about where some of the municipal cost drivers are. And I think the schools are facing exactly the same thing. I think Tri-County said earlier, what did they say right out of the gate? Inflation, right? All these other cost drivers are eating into um, exactly what that is. Um, and so when I look up here, and even just the salary increase alone, we know that the school district budget is 78% salaries. The municipal budget's not far from it too. It's a little lower because of all the debt, you know, all the debt and interest and some of the other fixed costs. How could, I, how could you possibly fund a $3 million increase in just salaries when the town's only bringing in 3.33 million new in revenue? I mean, otherwise, what I have to do is choice two, which is cut roads, um, basically, probably shut buildings, shut off streetlights, look at the senior center for less hours, library hours less, fewer police officers, you know, whatever else is in the budget. I'm just using those as examples, not like real life. Uh, snow and ice, we would cut that out, right? Uh, because we can legally say, under snow and ice, we can legally uh, actually overspend that account, and we can actually count debt against snow and ice because it's a public emergency. I don't think anybody wants that. I mean, I, I, I hope they don't, because <laughs> uh, that's just more public danger, right? So. If you're me and you sit there and you say, well, I'm not, I can't cut property and casualty insurance, I can't cut health insurance for our employees, I can't cut a lot of other places. I mean, I think we've been through this many, many years. Um, you know, there's just a lot of fixed costs. And when people look at the town administrator's recommended budget, I strategically did something that I thought was very important, and we'll um, hear about this tomorrow night as well as the town council. The competing demands that people are talking about are just absolutely unfundable for probably the rest of my career, right? I think I made everybody depressed last time. I hope everybody had a good night's sleep last time. But in all seriousness, you know, mental health initiatives, road work, um, net zero initiatives, sidewalks, infrastructure, we just keep adding to the want list and as I frequently said the other night, we're trying to just get the senior center van that we lost eight years ago back on the door, right? I mean, really, we're trying to catch up. This is not a, by the way, for people that blame the pandemic, this is not a pandemic thing. I'm sorry. I am way over that. We have to move on. We can't keep on blaming things on the pandemic. This has nothing to do with the pandemic. This has been a structural problem in Franklin since Jeff was here. 
and goes way back. So when I look at these slides, and I and I certainly the out of district tuition in my budget narrative that was not part of the budget model. It was, wasn't a part of the budget model. But a seven hundred thousand dollar increase where I miscalculated in my budget narrative was because every school district in Massachusetts is going through this pain. I thought that was a legislative relief layup. And I found out otherwise that it's not. So we may not be getting 10% of the 14% paid back. Um, to be honest, you know, I can't think of a more important issue. The billionaire's tax just went through. There's an issue of billion dollars in revenue and it was 93 million to solve that 14% increase statewide. And somehow we can't seem to advocate loud enough that that should be a priority. So I, I think where, you know, when you're looking at the options, ultimately, you either, the community has to pay a lot more in property taxes. We have to cut municipal services to fund, to fund this chart here. And all of those services will be felt, you know, again, cut a day off in the library, you know, trim a day on the senior center, eliminate the roads program, um, lay off, you know, maybe some ground staff, um, you know, whatever, the, whatever they are. Um, and yet we're at this conflict, or we're gonna have to redefine the delivery program. The schools will have to think outside the box and they will have to reevaluate the service delivery. Um, for example, maybe there's just some level of service, a category possibly, that maybe somewhere along the line that we have to decide as a community, we just can't do, okay? And I think we're all struggling, the municipal departments, you'll hear about it tomorrow with public safety, certainly with police and fire. Record-breaking fire calls, you'll hear that tomorrow. Uh, we just got the MEC data today about law enforcement calls. They've gone up 30,000 in the regional dispatch center over the last few years. I mean, clearly people are calling the police and fire departments for, for reasons. So we have a lot of competing demands. We have a lot of service delivery requests. And um, <laughs> sometimes I sit here and feel like I'm the only one on earth that says no, and because that's my job. And I don't want to. I wish I had all the money in the world to spend all this. I think everything that we're trying to do as a community is worthwhile. I think there's a demand for it. I think people want it. But event, again, I think eventually we have to look at those three choices. Either the, we have to redefine service delivery, to shift huge cost differentials from one side to another, or we have to pay more property taxes. And I just put these numbers up there to illustrate, and I hope it's helpful, not hurtful. It, it just can't, it's just not even close. It's just simply not even close. And I know that the veteran members of the council and the FinCom and other boards have heard me say this over and over, and I'm sorry that I feel like a broken record, um, but ultimately I need to emphasize it heavily just so that the community, as they go out to try to weigh these decisions, right, Nicole, they have the understanding of where the lines in the sand are. I mean, these are really, really, really struggling times. Yet on the flip side of things, when I go around Franklin, I think you're all the same, and I, I say, you know, I was on my first page, I know it's annoying, people want to just get to the numbers. Quality of life in this community is probably some of the best in the United States of America. It truly is. We are literally probably victims of our own success. I think Superintendent Gear just said it a minute ago, the staff that we have here are unparalleled to any other community. I say it often, I put our staff up against any other town. I feel like, I feel like we're in the Pro Bowl all the time with every department head, principal, and the people that we have. 
um, and the people here are making a difference that we see out here, even though these dynamics are in front of us, right? So even though we're struggling with what we have, and while you know the message is a little depressing that I'm portraying, when we exit this building tonight, the athletic teams are doing an incredible job. The academic achievement is at an elite level. We have an ISO 1 fire department, one of 450 out of 45,000. 45,000 in America. We're literally the 0.001%. An accredited police department. We have an incredible library, a senior center that's amazing. We have a full head chef at the senior center to deliver meals. We get you know, 80 people a day coming in on fixed incomes, 100 people sometimes for programs. I mean, it's a tough balance, right? And I say this out of pride um, for all that we all do in this room and all the people that are listening at home. It's a hard situation to be in because we want to be really happy and proud with what we have because we really should be really, really fortunate and lucky and not take it for granted. Yet at the same time, we are looking at these numbers um, and more so uh, in other areas too that aren't just school related. All of our staff deserve that money. There's no question about it. Everybody deserves it. No question. Um, how do we get there? Those three choices. And I think just a quick follow-up. Thank you for that. I agree. It's. I think the concern too is because I agree. I think we we are exceeding in almost every area given what we've been dealt with. So how do we now go forward to make sure that doesn't deteriorate right over the next 10, 15, whatever that is? I think that's really where kind of my thought is coming from is we need to think now. So five years from now, we haven't, we heard it last night in the school committee, for those that watch, like we postpone until we have to take action and it's similar in this regard. We don't want to deteriorate and then we're in a hole that we can't get ourselves out of. Phenomenal question. So ultimately, as Lucas pointed out just a moment ago, and I'm going to go through a couple slides on overrides tomorrow night, okay, in terms of how to do it, what the process is, and pieces like that. But the short answer to that one question, and we'll go through the mechanics tomorrow night, but tomorrow night, we'll go through some mechanics, but on that question alone, just so everyone understands, the paid staff for the town and school cannot advocate for or against any type of increase in taxes. Okay, it is, it, is, it is a state law. So I think part of the question, Nicole, that you ask is one I think maybe the schools and I get a lot, which is, well, you guys do everything, right? <laughs> Why aren't you doing this? Well, the real reason is when you deal with ballot questions, the town and schools have, the paid staff, have a very, very limited ability. And that's designed under Proposition 2.5 for a reason, right? Because it shouldn't be myself, and I think what Lucas was getting to a minute ago, every time a staff member like us says like the O word, you lose votes because people get annoyed. They do, and they justifiably get annoyed, right? What, what is that? Helen says we're doing a great job. What is, you know, what is it, what's superintendent, come on, what's in your budget? And people just generally get annoyed. The community itself has to go organize itself and painfully figure out some of this self on its own. There was a group Five or six years ago, um, the superintendent and her and I went. We got requested to go to a meeting to talk about some of the mechanics of these issues. I think some of the people in the room and at home were there. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Mom. Uh, and they heard from other school committees. And the one that I remember the most was the city of Melbourne. It's very similar where they said um, they thought it was easy. And it was a bunch of 
uh, newer residents to Melrose, the, the, the uh, median income was changing in Melrose, there was new residents moving to Melrose. Sound familiar, anybody? Um, and there was, a new, uh, there was a new level of values going to Melrose that were maybe a little different than the past, right? And they told the group some sobering stories of, they thought it was obvious. You just go out and do it. And I want to say, and I can't speak for them, I think it took them maybe four tries to go out and learn the political science of it, the organizational philosophy of it, how you go work with people, what's the systemic, and they had some really, really great stories. I think that group also had a few other school districts that had some experience, but um, ultimately that group in Melrose was ultimately a few school community members and I think a couple city councilors. Um, and they told some sobering stories of the hard reality. This was pre-pandemic to boot. Um, so they went out and, 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 and just grinded it out. Um, and they were so dedicated um, that they finally were victorious. Um, and I'd say that, you know, um, there have been examples. A lot of people in Franklin talk about how towns never pass an override, right? Or one out of 11, right? And, but I would also argue, even in the worst year of the pandemic, the town council still stuck to the strategy, listened to the taxpayers, and while we sat on the football field in quarantine, 10 feet apart, put the Community Preservation Act on the ballot, and it passed 60% to 40%. And why did that happen? There was a well-defined problem, there was a proposed solution, there was a strategy, and even when the times got really, really hard, where we couldn't go to people's houses, and we couldn't do door-to-door, -door, we couldn't do deal with it still passed, right? In a, in a year where I think there was a lot of nervous Nellies like myself and others thinking, you know, are people willing to do this in a year like that? And it, was, it wasn't even close. It was like six or 7,000 votes more than the no votes. So I think there's a no excuses kind of clause in that, right? It would've been an easy thing to say, well, you know, we can't do those, just run away. Um, and I think it showed some of the metal, if you will, of being able to still have those conversations with the taxpayers, but it was a grassroots organization. Ultimately, the community defined the problem, defined the solution, defined the strategy, and stuck to it, and kept going after um, And obviously, there was a success. So um, I just point to that as the alternative to the narrative of no override has ever passed, or one out of 11 has passed, um, and the debt exclusions, I think, are eight out of 10, if I, or eight out of 12. So, but ultimately, to answer the question directly, Nicole, the community needs to organize itself, and they need to spend and focus. If you think it's going to take you a certain amount of time to do this, quadruple. Really. It's a lot of hard work. A lot. And it takes a long time to do it. <coughs> Yes, if I may. Um, just to tie everything that Jamie just said, thank you very much, Jamie, back to what you were saying here. Um, first point, Nicole, uh, you're absolutely correct. You know, um, right now, if we have a pie of a certain size, you cut slices different ways, you're cutting into someone else's piece of the pie, right? But when the whole pie expands, everyone benefits from that. And you know, we you know, start off by you know, saying, you know, we, you know, our charge is to try to provide the best possible educational experience in Franklin Public Schools. We showed the whole slide 
list of services that we would like to provide and are unable to just because of the fiscal realities of that. And as Jamie just highlighted, there's all sorts of things from public works, public safety, senior center, library, all sorts of other services that they would also love to provide on that side too. And when the, when the whole pie gets bigger, everyone, not just the school part of the community, but also the town part, every, every single part, every single person in our community benefits from that. So you're absolutely correct that that messaging is important because it's 100% true. Thank you for saying that. Um, but one thing I wanted to piggyback off of what Mr. Helen said was advocating or support for schools shouldn't come at the cost of other services that are provided in the town, right? So, you know, I've been doing this, I've been in education for 20 years and seen a lot change, but overall, I just wanted, I don't want a soundbite to be out there that we're advocating and we're saying um, I think you used an example of like the van or the getting the van at the senior center or cutting a library position is not something that we're we're saying this is what we need to do to do to to right. to do business in an effective way in in an area where in our town we I'm putting up the slide again around where we're funding and then if we look at the where we where we land with with wealth I think these are compelling stats people move here for the services we provide which includes schools and other services. Um, but at the end of the day, you moved here for one of the reasons, but I know that my property value, I, I truly believe, I'll only speak for my own home, it's directly impacted by the level of service our schools provide to our students. And if anybody would challenge me on that, I'd find it hard pressed to believe that is not a factor in a town of how you operate. Now, does that mean that every single person's at that level of uh, wealth and income absolutely not this is an average so I want to just be clear um, but at the end of the day what we're saying is is you know and we have great partners in our in our police fire uh, library and whatnot anything we're saying we're advocating for is around what we need to do the job at the level it's expected to be done and it's not at the cost of some other department or our fellow um, my colleagues for me, it's just a little bit of trying to make sure that I understand the longer-term vision of the things that you're looking for as well, right? Because you can reject probably enrollment to a degree out five years. And understanding you have a long list of things that you're looking for, right, to reach your educational goals over a longer time period. And having that vision of, well, this is what we're thinking this year, and this is why, and these are the, right, that kind right. of brings me to a different level of understanding that I guess I don't feel like I have quite yet, um, that would be really helpful for me to be able to say, okay, I understand why why this is being sought right now, and this right. is the solution that you're coming to me with, um, because uh, I, I, like the, it was helpful to see the stories of these are the things that you have for these kids in each grade. Like I really like seeing that, but, but understanding the longer term, well, how do you get there? And I, maybe that also gets to some of the out-of-the-box thinking or whatever, right? And I don't know how that works exactly for your sure. industry. Right? That might be a better, maybe um, Mr. Connolly thinking about the, the question of out of the box. We certainly, the box we're in, we end up making reductions because we aren't as flexible with um, how we can schedule. But um, I understand your point. We certainly are uh, interested to provide more information about a vision. And I think people want to know, in any context like this, what are you investing in, right? What's the vision for Franklin Public Schools? Um, when I sit here after 
in, in my time in looking at each year, trying to solve, it's solving a budget and trying to, trying to meet a number. Um, and it's been less about trying. And we've even through that found really creative ways to provide opportunities for kids along the way. Uh, and that's why people come here. This isn't me trying to over, over uh, commit to the, the successes that we have across the, the levels. But I understand the question. We're going to continue to, to, to vision out. But I will say the one example I'll give is just looking at, for example, um, looking at early college and really trying to figure out there are mechanisms when you have enough staff to field uh, courses for students to enroll and walk out of high school with the equivalent of almost an associate's degree. If you can partner with schools, there's work that we're doing in this effort. The bandwidth it takes to set that up, to organize that. Schools who do that well have someone who oversees that entire process and liaisons with colleges. That falls, in our example, not only do we reduce a position, but now we've now added that particular function to somebody else who already had a full-time job. So that's like an example of how we've had to do things. So I think the visioning, the point you make, financial literacy, STEM education, careers in five years, 10 years that we didn't even think about when we were in high school that are out there, how are we preparing um, and moving kids forward. And we have great programming that we offer, pre-K through 12, but ultimately, um, I understand your question around the vision, and I think if you need, if you have that question, others have that as well, and we're happy to provide more on that. Anyone else? Except me. Um, I want to echo what Jamie said about, I'm a lifelong resident. I have never lived anywhere else. Only three houses in my life, and they're all in this town. So I, I have a stake, and now I'm old. So I got to worry about how much the senior community can contribute without really affecting their life. So that, that has to be balanced into this this whole equation. Secondly, the 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 results you guys get on the limited money. Limited, I mean, I looked at MCAS all those kinds of things, and there was a bunch of slides, not a bunch, but a few slides about achievements and that kind of stuff. And the achievements of every department in town. I mean, I had to take an ambulance ride a month ago. It was the best ride I ever had. <laughs> <laughs> it was the smoothest ride on Hartford Avenue in Bellingham I have ever had. Did they give you a scorpion ball from Hang Tai? <laughs> <laughs> No, it was uh, 20 minutes past 4 in the afternoon. Okay. So we were good. I thought that was your time. <laughs> My point is that the services we provide, really second to almost none, even on limited budgets. My last thing is, thank you for your service. You've been, I've been on here 10 years, and we probably have a few emails back and forth. <laughs> I usually started them with hi, pain in the ass again. <laughs> but thank you and uh, have a good retirement. Thank you. Anybody else? Anybody? Motion to adjourn from something. To adjourn. Second. George. Yes. Natalie. Yes. Michael. Yes. David. Yes. Stephanie? Yes. 
John. Yes. Tyrell. Yes. Shana. Yes. See you tomorrow night. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tin Type Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. And by the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.